Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tell, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, hey, thanks, Rini. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Cal, I, I want to ask you my very first question, which I usually ask everybody, and that is, can you kind of tell us a bit about yourself, your background, your story, and, and how that has brought you to doing all the work that you do today? Well, I have a, a traditional side of my tail and the untraditional side, and they work together. Uh, so the traditional side is a typical academic path. I went to college. I studied computer science. I graduated in 2004. I went to graduate school. Uh, I got my PhD in computer science. I did my two-year postdoc, and now I'm a professor at Georgetown in computer science. So a uh, very traditional academic path. The, the untraditional flip side of that is that I've been a writer for a long time as well. I started writing at college for the newspaper and the humor magazine. Uh, while still in college, I sold my first book, which was a, a student advice guide. I didn't like the student advice guides on the shelf, so I wrote my own. And I continued to write books throughout grad school and my postdoc uh, up to this point. So I have these two intertwined yet somewhat separate lives going on, this sort of very traditional academic and the somewhat less traditional uh, life as an author and blogger. Mm -hmm. So a couple of questions from that. Uh, you know, this is something that's always interesting to me is how sort of your previous background, both in computer science and sort of, you know, the, the, the non-traditional path influence how you approach all the work you do today from both sides. Like, you know, I know you have, you know, sort of like you said, the traditional path of computer science to PhD, and you've been writing for a very long time. And I'm curious how that influences your worldview and, and how you show up in the world today and how it affects the work that you do on, on both sides of the coin. Well, they, they, they keep intertwining in an interesting way. So uh, I was writing uh, advice guides. These are my first books, which meant you had to step back and say, I'm going to take a goal like how to get good grades in college, and um, I'll study it, right? And let, me, let me talk to students with good grades. Let me actually you know, try strategies myself, see what works and see what doesn't. So that was my mindset as a writer. But that means when you're in the other parts of your life, that's the way you're going to think about it as well. So as a student uh, in college and grad schools, postdoc, I had this advice guide writer mindset. Like, well, okay, well, wait a second. I forget conventional wisdom. What, am I, what goal am I trying to accomplish here? What strategies am I using? Why do I think those would work? What might I use instead? Uh, which really changed my traditional career because I didn't just unquestioningly pursue different strategies and goals. I was thinking, you know, what makes sense here? And then the computer science, the traditional academic life keeps coming back to my writing. So, uh, you know, I spent many years uh, at MIT in the theory of computation group. That's where I got my PhD. And that, that's a group that's famous for uh, what I call going deep. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the big uh, prized ability, if you're in a theory group in the computer science lab at MIT, is your ability just to give laser focus 
on a problem and just stare at it and, and move it in your head and, and come through with an answer, right? This ability to, to resist distraction, to, to go deep, to concentrate, to, to prove something hard was really valued. Well, that's come through in my popular writing now. A lot of what I talk about is sort of the importance of focusing on something, resisting distraction, doing one thing well. So it's been this interesting back and forth. The writing helps my academic career. The ideas for my academic career come back and affect my writing on other topics. Uh, so I'm, it's a great synergy. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. I mean, I, I think it's interesting you brought up the idea of traditional and non-traditional blending together. And I, I think that that is going to become the norm quite soon. I think we're moving to a place where traditional and non-traditional are blending for many people. And, and my guess is even people listening to this show, uh, a lot of them come from traditional backgrounds and they're finding themselves on a non-traditional path or trying to get on a non-traditional path. And I'm curious, you know, when we look at our own lives, how do we sort of blend the traditional and the non-traditional in a way that is effective? Yeah, well, I think uh, one way to think about things, it's a little bit maybe unique to our times. And so, you know, I write a lot about this notion of what really matters is uh, career capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea when you can do something uh, well, that's rare and valuable, you can imagine abstractly that you have more of this substance I call career capital. And this substance you can then invest to get cool things in your life, right? So the more career capital you have, the more control you have over your life. If you want a lot of time affluence, you invest career capital to get it. You want autonomy, you invest career capital to get it. You want more uh, connection to people. You want more creativity in your work. All of this are products that you acquire with career capital. The better you are at things that are rare and valuable, the more things you can get in your life. But that model is one that really breaks down these boundaries Uh between, well, here's a traditional job where these are the steps you do, or here's a completely untraditional job and and these are the steps you do. It says, well, no, you're crafting a life that you like by building skills and using them as leverage. And some of that might be uh, kind of traditional. Some of it might be kind of untraditional. That doesn't really matter. Uh Um, You're not saying this is what I do for a living. You're not saying this is, you're saying, no, I'm building up skills and I'm using them as leverage. I'm using them as capital to craft my life in a cool way. And there could be incredibly traditional elements of that. And there could also be incredibly non-traditional elements. Or if you're someone like me, those two could mix together quite fluidly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you brought up the concept of career capital because uh, obviously that was something that really I think you, you spent a lot of time emphasizing in the book. So let's do this. I mean, I, I think that you know when I look at the work that you do and, and having looked at your, you know, having gone through the book, I think what you provide us is a framework for how to thrive in, in our lives and our careers. And, you know, I'd love to start basically breaking down that framework for people and really kind of get into the details of it, really starting with this concept of, you know, why following your passion is bad advice. Uh, you know, and I have my ideas around this, but, you know, I know that you've talked about it in the book and it's, it's a large part of your work because, you know, as as you know, I was telling you even before we hit record here, there's plenty of people even on our show who have given that advice. Yeah, it's 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 very popular advice. Um, it's actually relatively recent advice. We really don't hear people talking about this until the 90s. Um, it's also a somewhat arbitrary piece of advice, and most right. importantly, it doesn't work very well. Uh, so to be clear, I agree with the goal of ending up passionate about what you do for a living. Uh That is my goal. That's the goal of my book. That's what I write about. It's what I want in my own life. But I think the specific strategy of identifying a pre-existing passion and then pursuing that as your main strategy for ending up loving your work is a flawed strategy. Uh Uh, It places way too much emphasis on the match 
between what you do and some mythical intrinsic trait, some intrinsic preference somewhere in your DNA that says this is the one thing you're meant to do. It places way too much emphasis on that match and not nearly enough emphasis on what the evidence says really matters for loving your work, which is first building up skills, and then once you have those skills, investing them, investing that career capital to craft your career into something you like. Uh, if you study people who love what they do, that's almost always their path, right? Uh -huh. Until they're really good at something, their working life didn't really get great. And if you focus on the match, you're going to be giving people a red herring. You're putting their attention in the wrong place. You're hurting their chances of ending up loving what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I was thinking, I remember reading through that section on passion and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm incredibly passionate about surfing, but I'm not Kelly Slater. And I will tell you that the handful of times that I've had to work with surf-related clients, uh, even on their social media, thinking, hey, this is a cool way to blend these two paths, I hated it. I absolutely yeah. hated it. I mean, it's interesting that way. So, which just emphasizes this idea that really what makes people love their work are these particular general traits, like uh -huh. autonomy and impact, creativity, uh, sense of competency. This leads people to love what they do. So the question is, how do you get those in your working life? Well, you have to have rare and valuable skills to offer in return. Uh -huh. And that's really what matters. Uh, the fact that you've matched what you're doing to a topic that you have a strong pre-existing interest to uh, there's nothing wrong with it, but you really shouldn't expect to get much benefit just from that fact. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that you really like surfing and you took a particular consulting job related to surfing, you should not expect that you're going to love that consulting job. It's really these traits you get after you get good at things that matter. Uh, so that's where I put my emphasis, mm -hmm. right? How much career capital do I have? How can I get more? Am I investing the capital I have smartly? Those questions are way more important than what was I put on this earth to do. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, I mean, I think as we were talking about here, like there's certain things, I, I think that a lot of us couldn't have planned these paths, right? Like Steve Jobs couldn't have sat down and planned to start Apple. And I've always told people, there's no way I could have planned to start Blogcast FM. It was the byproduct of a lot of sort of disparate events in my life that somehow came together. Yeah, which is, which is what's interesting to me about the fact that follow your passion is such a popular piece of advice because uh, it's very easy to validate. Uh -huh. All you have to do is go find some people who love what they do and say, what's your story? So I did that in researching this book, lots of different people, lots of different fields. And it was something like eight or nine out of ten had no idea in advance uh, what they wanted to do. Right? Uh -huh. They had no idea when they got started that they would end up doing what they love to do today. So. Uh, it's a simple idea to test, and if you test it, you see, oh, no one's doing this. Right? Mm -hmm. This is not the way that 90% of people end up loving what they do, and yet we keep it our primary piece of career advice, which is somewhat puzzling. Mm -hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about this whole concept of, of rare and valuable skills and career capital in a bit more depth. You know, one of the things that Chris Gillibo often talks about uh, is this concept of convergence, right? Like finding the thing that, you know, it, it's weird because sometimes he talks about passion, but I think convergence is really where these, I, this, you know, rare and valuable skill comes in because that's how you get paid. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's one of the places where people often get trapped is figuring out what those rare and valuable skills are. You know, like I said, I, I would have never predicted in a million years my one skill was to learn how to extract information out of people. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think that's true, and I think convergence, even by itself, so uh, which I think of as the sort of classical Venn diagram you see a lot now. Mm -hmm. You know, what you really like to do, and uh, what people are willing to pay you to do, and you find that um, intersection, and, and even that concept, I think, needs to be complicated a little bit, uh, because the point is the circle of what people are willing to pay you to do is a small little point 
until you've put in quite a bit of work to build up rare and valuable skills. So if you want to imagine, you know, that Venn diagram of those two things overlapping, uh, what's missing is the three, four, five years of actually expanding that circle of, hey, here's things people will actually pay me to do uh, to be large enough to actually have a meaningful overlap with something you like. Um, so again, any any approach that really focuses on, you know, uh, you can be loving what you do tomorrow if you just make the choice properly. If you do the right introspection and you find the right mix of things, uh, I'm skeptical of because the evidence says passion really does grow over time. And so we really do need to move away from uh, philosophies that say you could be loving your job tomorrow. All that matters is you know how to choose the right job. I want to move past match theory and move towards capital theory, which says passion is a, a product that's built over time. It's the, the outcome of a sort of consistent effort over time to try to get more of it in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I can. I, I was thinking, I said, you know, I didn't start out being passionate about interviewing people and having conversations. It's something that I, I noticed as I've gotten better at it, I'm much more interested in doing it. Yeah, you're probably much more, your, your job to you working on Blockcast FM today, I'm assuming is probably sort of significantly more interesting and fulfilling and something you love than it was on, you know, day uh, 15 of doing it. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Well, you know, it's, it's, so I, I want to talk about two things. You know, this is, this is, I think this makes a perfect sort of setup to talk about what you call the craftsman mindset, right? Because in a lot of ways, everybody who's listening to this is a creative entrepreneur who is really, at, at the end of the day, becoming masters of their craft. And I want to talk about two things. One, you know, what are the things that we can do on a day-to-day basis to, to really achieve mastery in our craft? And as we're cultivating that career capital, look for opportunities to invest that career capital like you talk about to get opportunities and to translate that career capital into opportunities. Well, in order to actually to, to build your craft, to, uh, to build more career capital, um, what, what, one way to think about it is you, you look at the potential activities you could do in a given day, for example. And for each of these activities, one thing you can do is think about, um, you know, how hard would this be for someone else to replicate? Uh, Someone else who's, uh, you know, intelligent and knows stuff, but just kind of off the street, right? Not like uh, an expert in this field. And look for the things that would be very hard for someone else to replicate, the things that are really maybe drawing upon skill that you've developed, those type of activities, that's where the majority of your time should be. Uh-huh. Uh, now, I call that sort of the philosophy of deep work, that uh, the problem of the sort of last 10, 15 years, the, the rise of distraction culture, <laughs> is that we've, uh, we're spending less and less time on the actual things that we can do that other people can't do that well. We're spending less and less time on those sort of hard, you know, deep attention requiring activities that actually are uh, our craft. Um, value that we're creating new in the world. And we're spending more and more time basically just sort of moving information around, responding to emails, you know, uh, passing links back and forth on, on, on Twitter or something like that. So the, the model that, <laughs> that I follow or that, that I like for, uh, for making your work into craft is that the bulk of your time should be on these deep activities. The things that's hard for other people to replicate, your effort should be you know, focused there, in improving your ability even more, doing things that are more and more valuable, basically maximizing the amount of new value you're creating for the world and spend much less time on the things that are not really creating much new value but maybe just moving it around. 
That's actually that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I've never heard it uh, put that way. So let's do this. Do you mind if we take that and sort of frame it in the context uh, of a tactical example? Let's use writing and blogging as, as sort of a perfect place because I mean that's that's kind of you know one of the things you talk about in the book is this whole idea of the lifestyle design blogger and the passive income stories and all of that. And a lot of people hearing this have probably been exposed to those kinds of stories as well. And you know, like we said earlier, we can kind of blame Tim Ferriss for some of this. But uh, I'd love for you to talk about exactly what you just mentioned in the context of that, because I think that that's where people are going to really relate and understand how to apply it in their own lives. Yeah. So if you think about uh, writing, uh, for example, whether it be for blogs or books, right, the, uh, the deep activity there is actually writing. Mm -hmm. And um, not just writing for the sake of writing, but actually stretching yourself, right? I, I, I want this to be good. Uh, I, I'm pushing this post. I'm pushing this book chapter. I'm pushing myself here to sort of incorporate uh, better dialogue, better integration of uh, narrative, better integration of outside facts. There's all sorts of things you do as a writer to sort of push yourself. And this type of approach would say that should be uh, the bulk of your time. Um, so if you take someone like me, for example, uh, I've never had a social media account of any type. I've never had a Facebook profile. I've never had a Twitter profile. Um, my website's been pretty bad looking. <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally having a professional designer do it and not have it be something I hacked together uh, while a grad student. Um, but you know what? I put all of that time that I spent writing just on the writing. Uh -huh. You know, always trying to push myself to become a better writer. I would take on specific challenges in between books. Okay, I want to improve this particular aspect of my writing. And I would take on commissions, uh, article commissions, just to push those skills. And that's where I put basically 99% of my time as a writer into that deep activity. Uh, and so I don't spend a lot of time doing other types of promotion. I'm not really accessible on Twitter. I mean, I know you had to go through my publicist to find me, um, but that's a perfect example of sort of this, this mindset of craftsmanship and depth that ultimately what matters is how well do you do the thing you do best? And almost always it's better to put more time back into that than to put it on sort of surrounding activities that are pretty easily replicatable. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you what I have found with the surrounding activities, right? I mean, because it's not like I can sit down and I can interview somebody every hour of every day. Um, but what I realized with the surrounding activities is they give you this false sense of productivity and this false sense of achievement. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, so I call that shallow work when, I, when I'm just doing my own sort of internal thinking, and I'm, I'm very afraid of shallow work. Uh, that's part of the reason why I, I've never joined social networks is because I don't trust myself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's so attractive. <laughs> the, the, the stuff you can do shallowy on there, it just it hits all of the buttons. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Semi-personalized, intermittently reinforced input, right? I mean, that's what a Facebook wall is, and man, we're wired for that. that at any moment, there could be someone saying something about me uh, <laughs> that's you know it's it's like putting a, a gambling attic in a casino and locking the doors among the slot oh, machines there, there are people saying stuff about you right now cal while we're having this conversation because i put up a, a facebook status update saying i'm interviewing cal newport this morning yeah. Yeah, so so it's not that uh, i think the technologies are bad i don't trust myself <laughs> so uh but i i think that's that's you know that's a big worry it's something i think a lot about it's just very easy to get in the shallow work as an academic i think this comes up a lot because, uh -huh. you know, uh, what a perfect example. You, you get a few years to try being a professor, and then you have this 10-year process, which basically says, hey, did you 
have, uh, did you create real value in the last five years? Did you have like a, a new idea that the world finds important? If so, you can keep your job, otherwise you're fired. Uh, that really focuses you <laughs> in a great way. It really gets you thinking critically about um, false productivity versus, you know, real deep work actually creating new value because essentially, you know, you'll lose your job if you uh, if you go for the, the former instead of the latter. So I don't know. I think about that a lot, but I sort of expect that we're going to hear more about it in more and more fields because it's going to be one of the defining issues probably of knowledge work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, yeah, I want to go back to something you said when we were talking about writing. You said, you know, like you look at ways to push yourself and you identify a particular aspect uh, or, or component of your writing where you want to stretch yourself and push your boundaries. I mean, for me, that, that thing... I think the entire theme of this year has been transparency and telling the stories that are, you know, you think maybe this will be career suicide. And those have turned out to be really amazing, you know, ways to transform my writing. And I think I finally found my voice as a result. But what I'm curious about is how people, one, identify a particular aspect, and then two, put that whole practice of stretching and, and pushing their boundaries into, you know, into a practical, you know, to put it into practice in their life and their work. I mean, an idea surrounding this has been helpful to me, um, came out of a sort of famous interview that Ira Glass did mm-hmm. about uh, uh, creative life, building a creative life. Um, so he did this sort of famous interview. You can find it online. And what was important for me about that interview is that uh, he said, first of all, it's hard work and you have it takes a long time to get good. And we've sort of heard that. Um, but what he added to it was this notion that what's important is that you have good taste, and that you develop good taste. In other, in other ways, uh, you're able to look at stuff in your field and really know what's good and what's not and, and see that, okay, my stuff's okay, but this stuff's much better. And being able to do that is like the foundation on which you can actually transform effort into um, progress. Mm-hmm. So I've taken that to mean that, you know, if you write, for example, you have to spend a huge amount of time reading and talking to other writers because if you don't have good taste, if you haven't developed your ability to recognize why these people are, are better than you, it's very hard to, to, to push yourself. Um, you can write a thousand blog posts without getting um, any better at writing, but you can write 10 blog posts and get much better at writing. It just depends, you know, what you're actually trying to accomplish. And so for me, I spend a lot of time reading people who are much better writers than me, trying to understand why they're better writers than me, trying to understand what I like about their writing, and then trying, often embarrassingly at first, to replicate it. Uh So it's like you build your taste. If you can build good taste in what you do, uh, then you can start making your stuff better. Uh Well, it's interesting. I mean, I would say taste drives a lot of how I select guests for Blogcast FM as well. Um, and part of that is something that I've cultivated over time. Like, I, you know, even the, the way I choose people now is really different than it was in the beginning. In the beginning, it was like anybody who wants to be on the show is fair game. Right. And I, I bet right now you can listen, you know, when you listen to other interviewers, you probably have an excellent sense of, uh, oh, they're not very good. Oh, they're great. And why, what makes them great? Mm-hmm. Which probably means you're getting huge returns out of the type of guests you bring on and the type of interviews you do because uh, you actually know what you're striving for. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, that's why you're getting better and better and are so good at what you do now. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I, I jokingly have been telling people, I said, you know, I see an entire industry go in a direction and my, my instinct is to go in the opposite direction. It's like go as far to the edge as you can go and, and find the people that we wouldn't find on other podcasts, you know. Uh, and that that's led to a really diverse set of perspectives. And, I, you know, I think that's another point you know, as far as developing taste. You know, I had Robert Green here and he always told me this and I've mentioned this a thousand times because I feel like it's still so relevant, is the importance of a diversity of inputs into our life when, you know, the temptation is to basically surround 
yourself with nothing but social media and lifestyle design blogs. Yeah. I mean, if you, the killer combination, I think, is that you have the good filter, right? The good taste. You can recognize something good when you see it. And then you, you couple that with a huge amount of inputs. I think that's where real innovation and real creative ideas come out of that combination. Well, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's sort of talk about kind of, you know, what happens once you get to this point of, of being so good, they can't ignore you. Um, you know, you, you got, you, cause you know, another component of this that you talk about a lot is, you know, missions behind your work and little bits. And I, I can tell you the mission component of, of what people do, I've realized is probably one of the common threads between everybody I've had here who is really successful. They're really clear on what the mission is. And, you know, we can blame Simon Sinek to, for this to some degree, uh, but they're very clear on why they do the things they do. And I'm curious how we kind of find that and cultivate that in our own work. Yeah, this turns out to be, you know, a very powerful factor. If you study people who love what they do, there's various themes that come up. And one of the common themes is mission. So not everyone who loves what they do has a mission for their working life, but those who do have a mission tend to love what they do. Mm -hmm. So I spent some time studying this phenomenon. And I think the, the high level point, the important point about really good organizing missions for your working life that could be a source of passion is they almost always require that you build career capital first. Mm -hmm. That if you study people who say, this is what my working life is about and they're successful at it and happy, they almost always started by getting good, building expertise first. And it turns out there's a lot of reasons why basically real innovation, real original ideas require relevant expertise as a precondition. And that's important because there's a lot of people who want a mission for their working life, um, but are trying to identify it before they've built up any particular expertise. And it's almost like trying to make a scientific breakthrough before you've actually learned the science. It's almost <laughs> definitely not going to happen. Um, on the other hand, if you actually put in the time to build expertise and are one of the few people who get there and then say, now I'm going to look around and look for something new to do with this expertise, uh -huh. you have a pretty good chance of coming up with something that's, that's really exciting and passion-producing. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, as, as I'm listening to you say that, and as I was reading through the book, I was thinking about sort of, you know, Chris Gillibo's World Domination Summit and even our upcoming event, the Instigator Experience. And, you know, I, I've said this before. I said, you know, the Instigator Experience is a byproduct of a lot of little bets, like, you know, the idea, hey, what if we interviewed three people at the same time and we did it via teleseminar? And it turns out to be a hit. And you're like, okay, well, what, how can we let, – let's try that one more time. And if it works, then you think about, okay, how can you outdo that? But I also realize, you know, in a lot of ways, I couldn't pull off the Instigator Experience without having done 400 interviews, and I wouldn't have even known who the right guests were. It's not like the idea hadn't entered my mind years ago. And I think part of it is that I've built a lot of social and career capital with the people that I'm bringing together as speakers and all that. And you know, I think about kind of how many little bets it took to get there. Yeah, so you're hitting on two good points there. So the first is, right, you're confirming what I just said, that um, you have to be good at something before you can really find these sort of great ideas. So you became very good at doing this style of interview. That was the precondition for you to start to have uh, actionable, interesting ideas like this conference. Mm -hmm. Now, the second point that I think is good that you mentioned was, okay, once you are really good at something, how do you find these good ideas built on your expertise. And that strategy you keep mentioning, little bets, is yeah. a great one. And that came up often in my research that uh, it's a pretty common pattern. Uh, someone gets good at something, uh, so they have expertise, and then they ask, okay, how can I use this expertise to sort of find an original idea, something, you know, uh, Chris Grubro approved, right? The sort of world domination -y kind of cool idea. Uh -huh. um, Little bets is a, a common strategy that the people I interviewed used. They said, well, let me try something, something that 
you know, takes more than a day, but not more than a few months and get feedback from the world about it. How did it go? How did it work? So you trying different interview formats once you actually had the expertise to actually get guests and do good interviews is a classic example of a little bet. And often this is what happens. People get good and they start trying these different things and it gives them really good feedback from the world about what's interesting and what's not. And out of there emerges this uh, eventually a really cool idea Mm -hmm. that injects a lot of passion into their working life. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, the entire story of Blogcast FM is little bets. I mean, this this all started as a blog post, which I've mentioned before, so I don't want to belabor that point. Uh, But yeah, I mean, everything I do, that, that, that whole concept has been instrumental in the way I approach my work because... I think that, you know, people always think, you know, hey, you, you have to have these huge ideas. And I've hit this, beat this like a dead horse only because I feel like so many people get caught up in big ideas. They, that big ideas are often what cause them to stall. And I've said your small ideas matter just as much, if not more, than your big ones. Yeah, and this, this turns out to be almost always the case. I mean, in my writing, uh, this has always been the case. I don't just sit back and say, what's my next book going to be about? Mm-hmm. Almost always it comes out of, um, well, okay, originally there was a blog post that caught some attention, and then I, I started writing some more blog posts, and then this caught some more, and then I went and gave some talks, and then I met this person. You know, just these experiments that emerges. Same thing in academia. Uh, I learned a little while ago that you can't, no matter how much you want to have an original, you know, scientific idea, um, no one just sits there and, and stares at the wall until it comes to them. <laughs> Instead, they write lots of papers. Uh-huh. This is what people did. The, the best uh, Nobel Prize winning, most productive, uh, most innovative researchers, what do they have in common? They write lots of papers. Every one of those is a little bet. And so no one cares about 99% of them. But they're out there experimenting so much more, shipping again and again and again, that of course they're going to be the people who eventually figure out, oh my God, if we just combine this technique with this concept, we can solve this problem over here. They're in the position to do that because they've tried out and exposed themselves to 50 techniques and they know about 20 different open problems and they've tried 25 different connections before then. So Mm -hmm. uh, this notion that you take experiments, you ship again and again, uh, instead of trying to sit back until you're ready to take the big swing, I think is a really powerful idea. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I, so, you know, I want to dig a little deeper into this process only because I think that people will hear that and they say, well, that sounds really nice in theory, but I'm not going to do it. Or they're like, you know, what's the point? But what, what I, I want to get from this sort of is, one, how do you figure out, you know, because people have hundreds of ideas, even small ones. So one, how do you figure out which ones are worth doing? Two, how do you get the most valuable feedback that you can from them? And three, how do you iterate on it so that the next time you go through it, you, you kind of improve on what you've done before? Uh, first of all, it helps to to put in the place diligence, um, which I, I define in the way that Steve Martin defined the word when talking about his rise as a comedian. He said diligence is um, it's not about sticking to the same thing. It's about avoiding things that aren't it. And so that's how I would start, that you have a particular direction in which you're putting down your chips. OK, it's in this type of writing. It's in doing this type of um audio form interview. It's in this field of academia. And you stay within those confines uh, for a long time because you need that type of constraint in order to actually build capital, build skill. Um, Okay. So now once you're within a constrained area, uh, then, you know, when you're choosing things to do, use that same test I talked about before. Well, how easy would this be for someone else to replicate? Is this really leveraging an expertise I've already started building, something I'm known to be good at, or is this just anyone could do this who had, you know, 25 hours to spend? And let that steer you towards things that are going to produce more value. Um, And then beyond that, you just have to ship 
Mm -hmm. You know, once you've, once something seems good, this is using my expertise. It's within this area that I've committed to for the next few years. Uh, then you, you get it done and you ship and you, you make completion, uh, something that you're addicted to something that you're always looking to get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, as I'm listening to you say that, I think back to something my friend, uh, Paul Jarvis said, we you know when I asked him about kind of his whole process, I mean, he's the design and technical mastermind behind people like Danielle Laporte and Marie Forleo. And he said, Ben, he's like, the way I look at it is I frame everything in my life as an experiment because he said, then when you frame everything as an experiment, he said failure becomes kind of impossible. And it's funny, right? Because you're an academic. My guess is that large amounts of failure are a part of your life on a daily basis. Yeah, we try to publish articles in venues that accept 10% of the articles. I mean, we, we fail all the time, even when we think we've succeeded. And that's not even counting all the proofs and techniques and algorithms that just never come together. Uh -huh. So let me ask you this. I mean, I think that the nature of what you do probably allows you to develop a capacity for handling failure in a way that the average person doesn't. And I'm wondering, how do we cultivate that? Because I think to do creative work, you have to have a tolerance for risk and failure that is unusually high. Well, I think uh, having a vision for what you're doing, having these sort of meta rules around what you're doing helps. So you have this notion of, okay, I want to try to become this type of writer, and I sort of know how that happens, and I have a plan for it. Um, I, I'm going to start writing you know, short stories and try to get them published in these places, and I know most of them will get rejected, and I'll do the Stephen King thing and stick to rejections <laughs> on a nail till the nail gets too full, and I'll put in a bigger nail. Um, but I know that I'm going to stretch myself each time, and, and I'm, I'm getting feedback, and I see my writing's getting better, and then eventually I get, you know, I'm going to get personal notes on the rejection letters, and then they'll get published and then I can start writing novels. Like you have this vision that's not arbitrary, sort of an evidence-based vision that this is how people get good and succeed in what I want to do. And I'm following that plan well. Uh, when you have that type of clarity about what you're doing, then yeah, failure is, is part of the plan. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, it's just sort of, uh, hey, I'm going to go do national novel writing, writing month and uh, maybe I'll just sort of write a novel in 30 days and just, you know, oh, I hope that doesn't get rejected or something like that, just sort of random sort of throwing something out there approach, then everything can be much more scary because you don't know what, what does rejection mean? What am I doing? Is this stupid that I'm even trying this? You get all those worries. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I like this diligence notion that it's like, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm putting my chips down and I'm going to spend a, a significant amount of the next part of my life working in this direction. Um, and, and here's how I'm going to do it. That type of clarity, I think, helps with a lot of the otherwise somewhat crippling um, psychological roadblocks. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I mean, to me, it's, I think that w what I have found is that you're constantly sort of stepping outside of your comfort zone, like slightly, you know, and then the boundary changes every single time you make that step. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that, it's just a constant with people who end up doing really interesting creative work is that every project they take on, it's, okay, in which way am I stretching myself here? Uh, okay, I haven't really done, I'm using the writing example here, I haven't really done this type of writing, uh, but I'm going to integrate more of that. And then you're really afraid of it, and it's hard, and it's uncomfortable, uh, but then you're better at it by the time you finish. Mm -hmm. And so you're constantly a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you're, you're a little bit uncomfortable, but you're also constantly shipping. And, um, and you're uncomfortable in a very directed way, you know, because you have that taste, and you're stretching yourself in the ways that you know are going to make you better. That's all the sort of ingredients in that creative life, uh, building value, building things that people care about types too. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I think, you know, our conference is a perfect example of stretching, right? Like, it, it's like, okay, this is outside of the comfort zone. But I know also, once it's done, like, what my comfort zone is will be a whole new ballgame. 
Yeah, there's going to a few years from now, your thought of doing a, a, a an intimate conference of that size is going to be, oh man, how easy and refreshing that would be, <laughs> yeah. you know, as you're as you're heading off to your three thousand person summit. <laughs> right. Well, I always, yeah, I jokingly tell people, right now, I feel like I'm starting, you know, planning a wedding and starting a religion at the same time. Yeah, and and five years from now, you'll f- think of that as like your weekend chore. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, let's uh, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit, and let's actually talk about sort of your book writing process, the book deal, and some of this component of it, because I think that you know this is also relevant to a lot of creative entrepreneurs. As you and I were talking about before we we kind of hit record here, um, you know, you're seeing people get book deals in record numbers, and not all books are great. But I want to do two things here. I want to talk first about the book writing process. Um, kind of one, identifying the seeds for a book and knowing when you're ready to write a book, because that's, I I think that's one thing people assume they're ready much earlier than they are. And that's when they, they find, they get a bit of a rude awakening. And then of course, sort of dissecting the process for writing a book, because, you know, you're writing a book and, and writing an individual blog post, two entirely different animals. Yeah, it is very different. Um, I mean, among other things, if we're talking nonfiction, uh, people give you money to do it and they give you money to do it before you've written the book, which often people don't under, uh, don't realize Um, you're getting an investment from a publisher when you write a nonfiction book. They say, okay, we like the idea. We like you, here's money. Uh, Now we're going to trust that you're going to come back with a good book. And that's, you know, that's a process that's hard to get someone to do. People don't like to give away money. Mm -hmm. So where I think people uh, don't place enough emphasis is on uh, the idea itself and why they're the right person to write it. You almost have to imagine like you're going on that that TV show Shark Tank, right? (laughs) I mean, you are going to have to make a really good pitch that like this book has a market. There's other books kind of like it that did well, but nothing just like it, and that you're the right person to write it. And I don't know if people necessarily always put enough attention into that piece. They move too quickly from, I have some idea Mm. uh, that seems somewhat interesting. Let me move on to the next step. Yeah, 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 no doubt. I mean, if you're sort of looking for threads in your work, I mean, clearly you've you've been at this for a long time before this book came out. I mean, like if I'm going, you know, I'm there's connections going off on my head now for the first time that are honestly like in four years I didn't realize a lot of them in terms of finding common threads between our guests, common themes, you know, and and that's why I, you know when my friend Christina said, you know, Shreen, you've got the potential to write a book that could be somewhat timeless. I said I'm not interested in writing any other book. Then I said well, I'll come back to you in a year or two when I have something that I think is worth talking about. But if we're looking for threads in our own work, any suggestions on how we find those or mine mine through our own work? Um, it was, so you're talking about like threads, for example, that, um, that might lead to a, that persist over, that might might lead to, yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you, uh, what, what seems to matter when you sell a nonfiction book is that not just that the, that the, uh, the book is a good idea, but that you really are the right person Mm -hmm. to write that book. So when, when looking for a mining, a book idea out of your personal experience, um, it has to be something that really is, uh, informed by your personal experience. If it's uh, generic advice right. that you know almost anyone could give, they don't see the reason to give you that book. Mm-hmm. Might as well have a, a, a better known writer do the book. Um, so, so in some sense, it, it has to be what you're selling is not just this idea, but the fact that um, from your personal experiences, you're the right person. Uh, you're the right person in the world right now to be expressing this idea. That it mm-hmm. comes out of your expertise. Uh, and your experience. So it has to be sort of personalized. So, so when thinking about the book ideas, I think starting from um, 
what is unique to me? What is it that I do in my business? What is it the personal experience that's unique about me? Uh, those are the right types of questions to be asking. Okay, that's uh, that's awesome because I think that'll open up a lot. Like I love those questions because they open up you know a lot of possibilities. There's so many different answers to those. So talk to me about sort of the tactical day-to-day writing process of your book. Like what did that look like? Because I know that you know I mean to to put together the arc and narrative and to have it flow in a proper way that takes some serious skill. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, writing's hard. <laughs> uh, this, this was my fourth book, so I've been through it a couple times. Um, you know, so so I think the key elements of my process is, uh, you know, I write a lot. Um, I don't always subscribe to the write every day philosophy. I, I usually call it write every week. In other words, when I lay out my week, I lay out, here's where I'm going to write. Uh, and it's uh, significant amounts of time. Right. So writing takes time. Uh, so that's a key thing. Uh, a second key thing is I, I plan um, on pencil and paper. Uh-huh. Right. And, and, and I don't, you know, it's not fiction or anything. This is advice, nonfiction, but uh, I'll usually do my research and I'll work through the ideas on foot uh, walking. I do a lot of my sort of writing walking. And then I use notebooks I bring with me to start sketching um, how I want the chapter to flow, what makes sense. And then I, I walk and think some more and change those sketches. And I, I usually try to have a pretty good sense of what I want to say, how I'm going to say it and confidence that I'm saying it in a, a way that it's good and, and, and valuable and smart before I start typing. Uh-huh. Um, so there's quite a bit of work happens away from the computer in this process as well. That, yeah, um, that, that somehow that doesn't surprise me, uh, and it's advice that I've heard from a lot of people. I mean, it, it kind of goes back to our point about this endless amount of, of information that is at our disposal and how it can be really distracting. I think that noise gets in the way of, of what we're truly thinking far too often. It does, and there's not, uh, you know, sometimes, here's the problem when you write in sort of a advice space or nonfiction space is that there's a tendency to see what you're doing as like a to-do list item, uh, and I always get distressed when like the blogger friends of mine or something who are working on a book uh, will say like, okay, uh, I got to shut down for the next month because, you know, I got to write my book manuscript. I'm just going to write every day at hours and get this done like it's a to-do list when I think there needs to be more of a sense of craftsmanship. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's not just putting in your thousand words. It's about really finding a nice way to say what you want to say and really, you know, taking the time to say, let me mull this chapter over. Or let me, I have, you know, notebooks full of outlines and I can't quite get it right. And being excited about the structure you came up with. And then when you write, getting excited about uh, the word choice and the rhythm and these sort of things, uh, this doesn't get talked about a lot, but really, you know, professional writers, like the ones I admire and aspire towards the professional, um, high-end, like, nonfiction writers put a huge amount of time into the craft of uh, how they say things, how they structure things, the rhythm of their words, and you don't hear enough about that. Often it gets way more simplified than, like, a, you know, an exercise routine or something. You know, I just, I get my thousand words in uh, because I'm organized and I'm scheduled and I have willpower. We don't talk enough about the craft, but that's actually one of the most fulfilling parts about writing, Um, even if you're in our world and doing, you know, advice and not war and peace. Yeah, I love that. It's the first time. You're right. It doesn't get talked about very often, and uh, it's funny because I'm I'm <laughs> I'm in the camp of you know I, I do I mean I I do spend a lot of time thinking about my ideas and and I you know I have my digital disconnects and that's where a lot of them start. But I also am it, like to me I wake up in the morning and I write. At this point, it's as you know, second nature is brushing my teeth. But I also realize I don't publish half of what I write. Like the stuff that I share is stuff that I've put a lot of thought into. Yeah, and, and, and blogging, for example, is a little bit different, too, because there's actually, um, 
you know, there's value and part of the value of blogging is why I do it. Probably why you do it too, is that you can work through a lot of ideas and get Uh feedback. I mean, it's an incredible tool. If you want to be a book writer, you should blog because you get not just practice, but like real time feedback on ideas, which is fantastic. Um, But to me, that has even a different feel, right? Like you wouldn't necessarily want to, if you you don't want to craft the blog post, like you might a book chapter, but that's because a book chapter you want to be around, you know, um, it's just one of 15 Uh in a book that's going to take you. That's different than it's a blog post. It's one of three that week or something. So, uh, I guess the, maybe one of the ways to say what I'm saying is that if you're working on a book, it should feel different than a blog in some sense. Those are two different things with two different goals. Let me ask you this, um, you know, once you have sort of this outline process, I mean, what is actually putting it together, like the assembly of it and the arc and narrative look like? I mean, is your process linear from that point forward or do you do you write in a nonlinear fashion and then go back and put it together? Because, you know, I, I, for the most part, I've heard the, the thing that at least freed me up to start working on bigger bodies of work was to take take the nonlinear approach to this. So are you talking nonlinearity on the scale of like uh, work on chapter 10 and yeah, then go exa- back to exactly. chapter one? Precisely. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of going back. I mean, for me, is I, I put a lot of work into at first trying to get the outline right, um, but it's really hard to know until you've really done all the research or written the book exactly what's going to be best. So I, I see it as tentative. What's in the book proposal is my my best idea at the time. Mm-hmm. of what the structure of the book will look like. Uh, and the same thing when I'm writing a particular chapter, I do my best to, to outline it the way I want to write it. Um, but then there's a lot of going back and forth and no, 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 I, I, I'm going to say this this way and I need the, this wasn't the best way. I'm going to get rid of this piece and change this piece. So within the chapter, there's a lot of bouncing back and forth. Uh-huh. And then as the chapters start to come together, then your overall outline starts to change because you realize I don't want to talk about that there here and we don't really need to make this point. Um, so nonlinearity is a good way of thinking about it. You keep laying out these roadmaps and then you dive in and all the lines get messed up again. And then you step back out and try to redraw the roadmap and you do that again and again. Well, you know, I guess for me, as, as I was listening to describe that process, I thought, wow, I mean, and I, I've mentioned this analogy before in terms of how we treat advice in the online world, but even for this process, your outline becomes a compass more than a map. It seems like. That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. And then you, you get some updates as you go along about, oh, actually, I think the real direction I need to go from here is, is this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I always say the view keeps changing with every step forward. So you see things that you didn't see before. Well, yeah, that's 100 percent true. Let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. We'll, we'll start wrapping things up here because I know, you, uh, you know, we're almost at an hour. Uh, one of the questions that I you know, this is just out of personal interest. And this is something I figured I want to talk to you because you're a college professor and we were you know, we were having a brief discussion about it before is kind of how all of this is changing the world of education. I mean, you're, you've got a firsthand view into a world that, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it, education is, is in a state of disruption at this point and largely the people who listen to this show and, and people who are like me and, and you know people like Dale Stevens are responsible for that. And I would love to hear kind of what your thoughts are around, you know, what, what are the implications of this for the future of education? Yeah, it definitely is in a state of disruption. Um, and I can tell you, everyone within academia is just as interested about this as the, the Dale Stevens of the world uh, who, are, who are knocking down the gates from the outside, too, because it's our livelihood. Um, I, <laughs> You know, I think I think one of the so there's this dissatisfaction often uh-huh. with, with education, especially higher education. Um, you know that there, there there's so many schools and, and people aren't sure they're really getting their value uh, out of these schools. And and I think there's going there needs to be 
uh, within traditional academia, there needs to be, a, in some sense, a hardening of the curriculum. And maybe curriculum's not the right word, but uh, school, if you're going to a, a university, a traditional university, especially an elite university, um, you get the sense that the student should be challenged more in certain ways, that it needs to be as a, a strong a possible experience. And, and so in particular, um, this notion of, of, of intellectual depth, you know, the ability to, to go into something intellectual and complicated that's uh, uh, really deeply and to really be pushed, right? That's something that you can get out of a, out of a good university that is sort of hard to get on your own, right? To, to sit there with a professor who's an expert on uh, Greek philosophy and, and to be brought along properly, it just can teach you a level of sort of depth and intensity of thinking that I think is, is very valuable, but that needs to be pushed for. Um, you know, uh, the idea that you have to do hard cognitive things without distraction, uh-huh. without, you know, looking at Facebook or looking at your phone or something like that. That should be more uh, of a prized skill that you come out of university with. <laughs> People come out of here saying, I know how to actually go deep on something, go deep on something cognitively demanding, give it attention, not be distracted. I mean, you should come away with that. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm I think people should come out of university more with uh, the ability to actually take value from great thinkers throughout history. Uh And more and more, this is not the case that you can leave university and not really know how to pick up, say, Plato or Nietzsche um, or or Freud or whatever, the, 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 the great thinkers of their time and actually get real wisdom out of their books. And that's actually somewhat new in the whole history of sort of higher education, whatever the 500 year history is, uh, Educated people, part of what they got out of it was an ability to draw value out of the insights of humanity up to that point. And more and more people can leave even a liberal education and, and, and not have that ability uh-huh. uh, because it's hard to gain. So what I see for the sort of future of especially sort of liberal education is that it's not going to be for everyone. But the people for who it is for need to come out with more value. They need to come out with this ability to do real intellectual depth, this ability to do deep attention and to be have a life of the mind that's not distracted and have the ability to draw from the whole world of ideas easily uh-huh. to, to actually read Plato for fun and profit and not just as a exercise in a, you know, writing a paper that I don't really know what it's about. Um, so that's what I see, you know. Uh-huh. It's harder, it's more focused, it's more high-valued, and it's, it's less general. Yeah. Maybe uh, there's different options for people educationally, and the sort of standard option now is going to get narrower, it's going to get harder, and it's going to produce more value for those who do it. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I think, as I mentioned to you, uh, my business school experience kind of, you know, I walked out, and I'm like, wow, I don't know how to do a damn thing. How is that possible? Ten years of, of work and two, two degrees, and I don't know how to do anything. And I realize it's partially because of exactly what you're talking about, it, there's no depth in a, in a lot of what they do, you know. And I I, I gave a talk to some Pepperdine students uh, a, few, a few months about a year ago, and I said, look, I'm like, if you guys do nothing other than show up for class and get good grades, you're a commodity. I'm like, you're going to have to do a lot more than that. Yeah, I, and I, look, the Marines right have this great marketing tool that basically uh, they know how to market by saying, yeah, you probably can't cut it. Right. This really isn't for most people. You kind of feel like there should be more of that uh-huh. in <laughs> elite education, right? It should be, hey, this is hard, right? I mean, we're going to, if you make it through here, 
and get good grades in this stuff, you're really going to have a pretty sharp mind. You're really going to be pretty sharp on the, the things you studied. I mean, you really are going to be able to go deep. This is not a, you know, you come in, you're, you're on Facebook, you do a little bit of work and get your A's. In some sense, by making it harder, by saying this is not for everyone, I mean, uh-huh. this is pretty demanding, I think you're going to make it more appealing. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, Cal, um, I have one final question for you, and uh, you know, this is something that I've closed all our interviews with, and, and in a lot of ways, you've kind of answered it throughout our conversation. But I, I kind of want to bring it all together. You know, it, it's interesting because you know, I looked at people throughout your book. Uh, you know, obviously, having interviewed 400 of some of the most extraordinary and remarkable people I've ever discovered. One of the things that I, I've constantly been trying to to identify, and I call I jokingly call this the research for the book that I don't know that I'm going to write. Uh, is, you know, you've got a, it's such an interesting world at your fingertips, right, where, you know, we all have the same tools, we all have the same resources at our disposal, yet there's two groups of people that I see, those who become so good that no people can't ignore them and those who don't. And I'm wondering what you think it is that distinguishes those two groups. Like what makes the Chris Gillibos of the world the Chris Gillibos and what makes the person who doesn't get to that level the person who doesn't get to that level? I think uh, focus plays a big role. Right. I mean, we, we all have the capability of leveraging these tools. We all have the ability of sort of doing interesting things. Um, but it's not until we're really creating substantial new value in the world that interesting things start to happen. And I mean, this was the, the, the whole theme of, of my book was once people get good at something and create new value, their jobs get really cool. So focus on that more than finding the perfect job. And I think that's what, in, in some sense, differentiates if you take two people who both have ambitions to to dominate, be world dominating, to do something interesting, do something creative. And one of them ends up actually having an impact and the other person ends up sort of spinning their wheels. I think it's that focus of their efforts that matters. That You have to actually create substantial new value for cool things to happen. And to do that is a process of uh, focus and diligence. It takes time. It takes time of you concentrating your efforts in the same area and pushing yourself again and again for months and then years. Uh, That type of focus that you don't get caught up in another unrelated project or start another venture that seems to separate. I mean, look at Chris Grubo with his country visiting uh, plan, right? Talk about focus. That's like 10 years. I mean, I first met him. He was the number was much smaller. Now he's done. Uh, uh-huh. That's a, that's a effort of like, I'm focusing my energy. Yeah. We can all do cool things, but his actually took, you know, a concentrated effort and a huge amount of attention and energy over like seven or eight years. Um, so that's what I think matters. Uh, when your break happens, how it happens, a lot of luck is in that, uh-huh. but the precondition is this sort of consistent focus application of effort in sort of the same area. The more value you're producing in the world, the sort of the, the bigger, the odds that, that you're going to, you know, pull the triple cherries on the, on the slot machine. Uh-huh. I- I think that's a, a, just a brilliant way of summing it up. You know, I, I love that you brought up sort of this consistent focus because I think that it's it's often overlooked, right? Like we often see people when they arrive. And, you know, you talked about your big break. And you know what? I, the, the thing that I found when I talk to people about that that moment is that they get the big break, but then they realize that the, the whole concept of the big break is just a complete myth because the real reward, even as Seth Godin said in The Icarus Deception, is that you get to do the work that you wanted to do all along. 
And, and, and if you talk to people who've had sort of big breaks, I mean, um, sometimes they come out of nowhere, but often they're, they're, they're sort of anticlimactic because yeah. it, they usually had this long ramp up period where their value was really recognized and they were, and so they're already happy. Right? It was like, okay, I love it. Like I'm good at what I do. I'm respected for it. Like this is all great. And then, Oh, Oh, by the way, you're, you know, this book of yours just sold a lot of copies or something like that. And that's what it becomes almost like a, Oh, that was like a nice little bonus. But the, the, by the time the break comes, they're already where they wanted to be. Um, and it's not really about the break anymore. It's about, Hey, I'm producing real value and I'm respected for it. And it's giving me, um, autonomy in my life. It's giving me a mission. You know, that's what, that's what drives people. That's what creates passion. And if you're doing that, well, you're going to have these cool breaks along the way and they're fun, Mm -hmm. but it's really not what it's all about. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I always call it the domino effect that occurs in slow motion. Yeah, I think, or the Matthew effect, I think, is another way of thinking about it, that sort of as you do things, as you get better at things, you start to get more and more good things easier, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's once you get really good at something, you start to get really cool opportunities that kind of come along for free, opportunities you would have killed for when you first got started. Um, and, and when they finally come, they took no effort, right? You spend... <laughs> All of your time when you have a new blog, you know, trying to get people to sort of link to you or something. But then once the blog is good and you've established it, you sort of can't even keep track of all the links that are happening. You know, uh, it's funny how it works. So really, if you putting your attention on building the skills, creating value, it's almost everything else follows from that. Well, Cal, uh, first off, let me say, uh, you know, you've been absolutely phenomenal as I expected you would be. And, and now I can see why I got so many requests to have you here on the show. Um, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with uh, our listeners. And this has been really, really cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was a good conversation. I'm sure having some new insights myself, I have to go write these down. Today's episode of The Unmistakable Creative has been brought to you by FreshBooks, the simple accounting solution for business owners who want to skip the headaches of tax time. No more hunting receipts, digging for invoices, or going through records one at a time. For a limited time, you can try it free for 60 days. That's two whole months to see how much more efficient it will make your invoicing process. Visit GetFreshBooks.com to learn more. And remember, when you get to the How Did You Hear About Us section, enter Unmistakable Creative. And don't forget, when you support our sponsors, you support our show. You've been listening to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.